0: Well, I didn't have any whiskey in my house, so I went next door and borrowed some from my neighbor. From your so.
1: ex-wife neighbor or your real neighbor? Yeah, my ex wife neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> so That was nice uh, of her. <laughs>
0: it was nice of her. She doesn't know, but now I guess she might. Oh, uh, you
1: snuck into her house. And- <laughs> I
0: did. I did. I've been watching her house because she's been away. And okay. also, I'm having this renovation on my bathroom, so currently I have no toilet. So it's all working out really well.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: Yeah. Right. This so. is actually
1: a really good uh, preface to our conversation about divorces. <laughs> like yeah. how to stay in the good graces there of you your yes. ex so they'll <laughs> let you use their toilet. And uh, their
0: and their rye. So I and... have I have old overholt rye. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but Oh,
1: it's a classic.
0: Is it a classic? So yes. cheers. Yeah. You know?
1: Cheers. Um, I have, well, I keep calling it actually accidentally Bailey Hazen, but really? <laughs> Basil, Hayden. <laughs> Bailey Hazen, I like. Well, they call it, people keep calling it Bailey Hazen up here because there's a famous quote unquote super old road from the 1700s called Bailey Hazen and there's okay. signs for it everywhere. It's our house well. Because it's a good sipping bourbon, but it also makes a nice boulevardier. Yes. And so <laughs> but our neighbor keeps calling it Bailey Hazen. And so now I can't get that out of my head. So we're on part three of our partnership. That's right. little unit here. Um, and I know I threatened last time that this is going to be the John Gerber attorney show. <laughs>
0: I mean, we did talk about how partnerships, like the formation of partnerships, we talked about like why and how partnerships change. And I guess today now we're talking about what happens when
1: they They separate, they they break break up. up. Yes. Yes. Which was like, I mean, last time I had a flow chart going, which was where two partners agree that things are wonky. And so they walk down that path together and hopefully fix it. And then we also talked about the other the other that fork in the road is if you don't agree that things are wonky you perhaps need to go to consult your attorney and then you're probably in a dissolution conversation right um but i guess also if you agree things are wa- wonky and you can't figure out what to do about that or come to some kind of resolution of your wonkiness like you, you can't figure out what the transition is then you also might move towards some kind of separation or dissolution, and we should probably name the f- sort of flavors of breakup okay do you want to do you want to take a shot at that
0: um, I mean there's some obvious ones, like you know partnerships are going to break up if somebody dies partnerships yep. are going to break up if somebody you know is if they are service type partnerships if somebody is disabled and they can't you know participate in the business yep um. Those are more straightforward. Um, Partnerships are going to break up if one person voluntarily leaves. And, you know, you talked about that a lot in the transition section where people might have perfectly really good reasons why they don't want to continue in the partnership. Right. Um, So they say, I want to get out. Um, And there's sort of a subset of that, although I'm not sure that applies a lot to the clients that we're dealing with. But the subset is retirement. You know, if somebody says they want to voluntarily leave at a certain age, you know, you can take that in, and it, and you know, there are different consequences. I think if somebody retires versus leaves, you know, sort of midstream, right? For or sure. it's more like midstream. And then there's also like the the sort of let's call it like bad acts category of why partnerships dissolve. Like
1: somebody's done a bad thing. Somebody's done a bad thing,
0: right? <laughs> Somebody's done a bad thing. Yeah, you know, they steal. They create some sort of legal liability for the company, whatever it is. And those, yep. you know, we define one of those. And then, then there's like the one that that we're getting at, which is the more gray area, complicated one, which is the whole feeling of that there's some inequity in the in the business and. Yep. It's because maybe the person isn't performing what the other partner thought they were supposed to do. Partner or partners, it could be qualitative, it could be quantitative. They're not putting in as much time, um, but because it's gray, you know, the, the triggering event is this impasse, right? It's sort of like, what are we going to do if we could, you know, that kind of thing. Does that cover the categories? Generally? I think
1: so. I do think there's a dissolution where both partners kind of become disengaged and just want to do other stuff, too. Like, there is a more neutral, like, we're over it type moment. And that can also be Um, Mm co-retirement. It's really, like, maybe there's some life-determining event where there's an exit that is, let's say, quote-unquote, an act of God. (laughs) Right. (laughs) To use the... Yeah, the unfortunate terminology around that. Um, There's one where there's, you know, where folks are in agreement that there needs to be a dissolution or somebody is going to leave and one person is going to stay with the business. Yeah. And then there's the third bucket, which is there is some conflict or tension that needs to get worked out. Right. And whether that somebody does stay in the business, whether you divide the business down the middle or in some other fashion or whatever. And particularly, I'm interested in because you've spoken about this. Like, and I think it's interesting. Which, as a lawyer that puts together legal agreements for folks, like, there's a limitation to what those are actually going to do and what they're about. Mm-hmm. Which I think is just kind of interesting because they're not, um, you know, they're there for protection and clarification. And also like the worst case scenario, if you go to litigation, which is unusual, but for our, I'm always for in, our clients and for for, the, our clients, the, the, and yes. for this
0: discussion, given the size and yes. nature of the businesses. Yeah. 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 I, okay. I mean, I see it the same way, you know, that aside from the acts of God, or let's call them maybe involuntary acts, um, you know, that there there's. I think the agreed upon wonkiness is sort of what you were saying is that there's some consensus between the partners about what that they want to uh, separate, not necessarily what it looks like to separate, but that they want to. And then there's the not agreed upon wonkiness where, you know, you're you're in a disagreement about whether there's an event that even yeah. tr- the, the separation right do you
1: ever do you ever have folks come to you that don't think they're in a divorce process and then end up being in a divorce process do you have you ever been like had to name that and be like actually i think what you're talking about is dissolution <laughs> Yo,
0: um i'm trying to think of i've had it the other way around a lot which is that people will come and they'll say hey we're thinking that we need to separate can you tell us what happens if we if we do Right, so because we because we want to kind of know what the consequences are as a way to help make the decision about whether we want to split. And then
1: you I, and then you talk them into not separating. No, then I just no. know them.
0: Like you know, it, uh, usually you what I say, say is, well, it depends on what you're how you're going to categorize the reason for why you're splitting. Right, because if you have an operating agreement that addresses these issues. And again, I think we can jump into this later, but...
1: I think this is what we should talk about right now, actually.
0: All right, we'll talk about that. Yeah. It'll provide a roadmap for it. So the first question that comes up in that context is, um, well, do you have an agreement in... Plex- oh, yeah. Not? Shit, right. Because very <laughs> often... <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) The answer is, no, we don't have anything. So, you know, and again, that's like it got married. We didn't do a prenup and now we're separating and we got to figure out what to do. Right. Yep. And then, okay. So even if there is an agreement, the question then is, does it actually have anything in it that addresses the questions that we're talking about? Right. And, the answer in my you know when i've reviewed a lot of these that i haven't drafted and the answer is like for small companies like this often they don't and really uh, really
1: what kind of bad lawyers are they going to <laughs>
0: you know what maybe they didn't go to lawyers or maybe you know what maybe they just went to lawyers and they got a very simple agreement that didn't have yeah. things and so like actually last week one of my clients sent me a form that they got from LegalZoom, zoom and oh I'm not, no, you know what? I'm not knocking the agreement. The agreement was like, you know, is a good, basic operating agreement for a like three-person, uh, closely held partnership, right? It's fine. But on the issue of what happens if somebody wants to leave, um, it was a complete punt. It It didn't have anything. It said that if somebody wants to leave, the parties, basically the parties will agree by you know, unanimous consent on how that's going to work.
1: What's the so I wanna I wanna ask you this. This is a leading yeah. question, obviously. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> is what's the problem with that?
0: There it isn't this is what I'm saying. It's it's there isn't necessarily a, a problem with it. It's yeah. it is because because a lot of almost all the time you're gonna have to reach an agreement that's a consensus on what's gonna happen, even if there's an operating agreement with a roadmap on what right. is supposed to happen um so there isn't necessarily anything wrong with it it's more of a leverage situation
1: right right
0: because the because well it depends it could cut both directions but um like if you have an agreement that says hey if you do something if you do one of these bad acts that we're talking about the company has the right to terminate your partnership and buy you back at some discounted rate to the valuation of the company, well, that gives the leverage to the to the company and the remaining partners, right? If you didn't have anything about that and that same situation occurred, well the balance is different, you know, the remaining partners would still have right under the rights under the LLC law and other things, but it isn't as clear and it's not in contract, yeah. right? And
1: we've seen that. Like I, I know you and I have worked with folks together where often in trios this happens Mm -hmm. where you know two partners who are putting more of the elbow grease in perhaps uh want to get a third partner out and that third person ends up with a shit ton of leverage usually because they're like well they can or I, i guess what i'm saying is i've we've seen this exact scenario where the person that's they're trying to exit ends up with all this leverage because they're kind of like, make me. Exactly right. So if you had an agreement that said, you know, that,
0: that said, hey, you know, if you do one of these things, we have the right to get you out, then, and you have an obligation, like you're legally bound to sell your shares back to either us or the company. Well, then that leverage flips, right? Yeah. I mean, you still could have an argument. and And I think in the scenario that, we're talking about with a particular client, you know, you, you can make an argument mm. that the company acted outside of the scope, you know, like didn't have the right to, to exercise that they, that they thought they did or that they claimed to. And then you're in this, you know, yeah. yeah. type posture, but even so it, it's a question of leverage and, and, yeah. and, and if you don't have anything in there, if you don't have anything in there and let's say you're a small partnership like a service partnership and someone dies, like you don't even have a, a mandatory, Right to, or the the option to buy that person's shares back. So like,
1: so what happens to them?
0: The shares are an asset; it goes to their estate. And all of a sudden, you have some heir. If you don't, if you don't have a way to get those shares back, you have some heir, spouse, kid, whatever, um, as a partner in your partnership who's obviously yeah. not active in the business. Right. So you want to have a mechanism to do that under yeah. those circumstances. So again, it's not inherently bad it just it just kind of opens
1: opens up some yeah areas where things might get sticky yes or yeah. unclear or and i think i know i've seen i've seen agreements that you've written that in the event of a partner's passing state explicitly that the spouse doesn't actually get anything like where it sort of closes that door entirely to I guess, just clarify that the estate doesn't have rights on that thing, which is an interesting way to do it. It gives,
0: well, there's two pieces to it. There's, you know, the one piece is that, you know, that the company or the remaining partners, and that's like getting a little too detailed about who makes the purchase and because there's tax reasons and liability reasons and other, but like, but there's an option to buy those shares back. Sometimes it's mandatory so that if someone dies, like there is a mechanism so that you don't end up with the shares in a spouse's uh, possession, and and the same thing is true um, if someone gets divorced. Like you could say, you know, you can you you can have a waiver that says that in the equitable distribution of the marital assets, the value of those shares will be accounted in a different way than actually having the spouse take the shares.
1: What I like about your agreements, if I may. <laughs> <For you. laughs> Is that I, I think you you usually clarify that piece of it, which I think is a good idea. That's a basic one as far as yeah. I'm concerned, really. Yeah.
0: You know, and the you know, and and the same thing if someone does something that's, you know, like one of these bad acts that everyone can agree are like reasons to, you know, yeah. get somebody out of the business. But I'll say this that even when you have a triggering event that seems like it's perfectly clear, like death, that's probably the clearest one. You either are or you're not, right? There's no gray area with that one. And, and so, even it, I've had situations where even when one of the partners has died, the buyout of that person's estate, so it was the widowed spouse, still had problems. I mean, in that situation, it was a 50-50 partnership. The, the remaining partner's shares had passed to... Their ch- child, who was running the business at that point, and that person was an asshole, and he one contested the whole like valuation mechanism that was in the pretty clearly written in the agreement. It wasn't my agreement, but it was pre- very clearly written in the agreement, um, and he also just said, "I'm not complying with this. I'm not doing it." So just like any other contract you have Oh shit. Yeah, no shit is right. So you just just like any other contract then you're faced with like what do I do in terms of enforceability? So in that in that situation, you know, because I'm not a litigator, um we brought in a litigator to represent the the widow's um rights in this and that no that situation pretty quickly turned around, but it cost time and money for her to, you know, to to get what she was Pretty clearly entitled to under the agreement. but it just goes to the point of um, you know, clearly I'm an advocate for having an operating agreement that identifies the events that are going to create these you know create these exits and and what the what the consequences are of of them happening. Um, and also like who has the right to actually make that determination, which is a whole separate question you're inevitably going to end up in a situation where even though you have this roadmap, there's a lot that's going to have to be agreed on before the deal gets done. You're going to have to have an agreement that people come to. Totally. And that goes back to the original point. So if we have sort of this agreed upon wonkiness and we enter into, the, into this sort of, how do we come to an agreement for the exit? If we, if we enter into that from a, like a consensual basis, right? And, and you know, that's our motivation for doing it. You know, that sort of sets the tone for a certain kind of negotiation. And if we are in a more adversarial disagreement kind of kind approach, um, then, you know, that's a different kind of negotiation. And um, I know that you and I have dealt with both, you know, on the on the disagreements. And so again, then it's like any other negotiation, you know, the kinds of things that go into that have to do with leverage they have to do with personality like you and I have dealt with the situation and where you know person like just a flaming jerk asshole person but even though that person had no right to the things that they were asking for just by sort of force of personality you know got got some stuff right yeah. in the deal
1: and I, I hate those circumstances personally I mean I'm sure is like just from a objective advisory position it's just they suck to go through because and, and i would say probably to clarify, you and i are generally not on the side of the asshole <laughs> we're, we're usually with. The, we try we yeah. try not to be but um but i guess when i've you know when i've worked within that circumstance i think it's just so frustrating because and i you know this is one of my rules of life is you can't negotiate with emotional terrorists You know, and so if you're in that circumstance, there's not really much you can do, and you end up often paying the person to go away. You do. Which can be quite detrimental to the business. And I've had to work with folks through some really rocky finances for quite a while because that buyout really hurts.
0: Yes. Well, I have a comment on that at the end that we should talk about. Oh, And it is something I want to talk about is sort of what the role the lawyer can play in this situation. Yeah, I think this is
1: helpful to know.
0: Right. Because again, that was a relatively small company. And, you know, even though one of the partners was a jerk, I do think they entered it into knowing that they wanted to have a separation and wanting to come to some sort of agreement. So I'm often asked to sort of facilitate a negotiation and draft the terms that the parties agree on so I represent the company, not any one partner. And so long as you know, they are really coming to the terms, um, maybe with some ideas that I put out there, but like, I'm not negotiating the deal. Like, that's something that lawyers in my position do, I think, regularly. And, it's, it, and we talk about that up front. And, and everybody knows, though, that if, it does, if the consensual does become a disagreement, then everybody has to have their own lawyer. And that probably means that I'm not either person's lawyer in that situation. Yeah. point. Um, and that's what happened there because I felt that the, the situation was just so one-sided because of the personality that I, I, I couldn't help advocating for the other yeah. party. And then I couldn't be in that position.
1: I don't generally work with folks on the divorces in the same way you do, obviously, because... It's just at a different phase, and when you need a lawyer, you need a lawyer. But I also, you know, I because I've had this conversation recently, actually, with some folks that I work with, where, um, and it's not, you know, they're not in a dissolution phase at all, but uh, where I have ha- also had to say, like, I'm, I'm here on behalf of the business. The business has hired me. Yeah. And so ultimately, that's the the entity that I'm going to most advocate for. So if one or the other of you wants to go down some path and I don't think it's in the best interest of the whole, I will say that. Mm. And I think that's helpful in an advisory capacity with multiple people is to sort of be really clear in your advisory capacity, actually who you're representing, because it's not the people. Right. Ultimately,
0: I think that's an important part. Like your role in there is an important piece in that process. Um, mine is actually, I'm actually bound by the rules of, of lawyers, you know, professional responsibility to do that. So I yeah. have to do it. But having you, sometimes it's a CPA, you know, somebody there to be like, I'm representing the company. I'm, I'm not necessarily a mediator, but I'm, I'm, look, yeah. I'm here for the whole kind of thing um, mm-hmm. can be can be really helpful.
1: Well, and it makes it easier, I think, for folks to hear when you're saying, well, you can, especially if there's somebody with a stronger personality or who's more bullish and somebody that's not, to to be able to name when they're going down a path that's ultimately going to harm the business. Because again, like in somebody's holding a, trying to hold to a higher valuation or make some buyout agreement that you're like, wait, you can't pay for this. This is going to pay for this. Like, are yeah. you crazy? Um, I think having that stance where you've already made the container as the advisor where you're, you're trying to be Switzerland as much as possible, even mm-hmm. if you're kind of not, mm-hmm. that can be helpful. Definitely.
0: And, you know, in, in your case or with the CPA, like you really know the financial you know, mm-hmm. you know what's going on financially with the company. So if somebody is asking for some valuation that's going to screw, it, like that, the remaining partner just won't be able to pay, you can call it out. And, you know, I mean, right. So, so this sort of aggressive, you know, asshole negotiator is on one end of the spectrum. And then on the other, you know, you have partners who really are like their friends and they care about how the situation ends up for both of them. Yep. And you know again it just that's going to that's going to sort of dictate how the how the deal goes. There is a theme that even if you have the roadmap, you know there's going to be things that aren't necessarily
1: addressed. I think I told you about this. There's this book framework. I'm not going to remember the guy's name, but we can put in the show notes called Slicing Pie. Kate here, just happening to explain this a little bit better. Uh, The book that I'm referencing is called Slicing Pie. It's by Mike Moyer. And in it, he has a framework uh, called the Recovery Framework, where he lays out four quadrants under which a partner might exit with differing consequences for each. And those four scenarios are A, fired for a good reason, B, fired for no good reason. C, resigned for a good reason. D, resigned for no good reason. So when a partner is fired, asked to leave for a good reason, like stealing from the company, or when a partner decides to leave for no good reason, i.e. the company is not forcing them out, they're moving on to move or for some other life circumstances, then they walk away with nothing. The company does not buy them out. And it's kind of an interesting case for how to come up with equity splits in a pre-revenue startup. Mm-hmm. But the, the part of it that I wanted to bring up, which I think is kind of interesting, is that this guy posits a sort of four-quadrant framework for exits. And, you know, if there's this bad actor kind of thing, like you steal from the company, you're out, you get nothing. But if you also decide to leave, voluntarily leave for a reason that has nothing to, that's good for you, but not necessarily good for the company, like maybe you move across the country or Mm -hmm. you want to get a different job, you also walk away with nothing.
0: Wow. Nothing's extreme, but okay. Isn't
1: that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because it's like, I could see how if depending on your orientation around fairness and your values and stuff like that, that actually would make total sense, which is that- if somebody's like hey i don't want to do this anymore i'm moving that's going to have an adverse effect on the business likely like you're there's all these upheaval and consequences to what to do about that depending on the partner's role yeah so you're leaving the business in a more adverse position potentially because of your own your own good reason mm-hmm. so then yeah you wouldn't get anything um Inverse of that, though, like if it's a good reason for the business and like the other things, then you would get paid out. Things. Um, yeah. like if, if you're kind of getting asked to leave, but you know, it, it's it's almost as if you were fired for cause or were laid off for some shitty reason. Yeah. Um, you know, you could get severance or not, but yeah, it's an interesting framework. It
0: is, and and you could get like super, you know, like you can cut all those quadrants even finer. You know, I mean, sometimes people say, okay, if you, if you voluntarily do the California move thing, like maybe it's not a forfeiture, but it's 50% or 25%, you know, that kind of thing. And then you could say, well, if it happens within a certain period of time from when we start, it's a forfeiture. But if it happens after that period of time, maybe we're an enterprise at that point, like you get something more. So like you can really start slicing this if you want.
1: I could see how, though, one, that level of detailed convolution you can get really intense about, and I think that gets complicated, and there's some drawbacks to that. But I could also see, though, how some of these scenarios could delay decisions that people should be making mm. because they're like, well, shit, I'm going to give up my shares if I leave, so then they're going to sort of, you know, you don't, you don't want to have like a resident Bartleby because they don't want to leave because they're going to walk away with something. So right. I do I do think I could potentially see where that could backfire too. depending.
0: That makes sense. I mean, that's sort of the same concept of like, you know, if you have shares that are vesting, you know, like, yeah. do I hang on for my full vesting period before yep. I quit or whatever? Yeah.
1: What was the thing that you wanted to come back to?
0: Oh, well, it's sort of the... Be careful what you wish for. If you're the remaining partner or partners um, and you know okay. you're you, you want to get somebody out, it can backfire. I mean, I don't, worry, I don't know if backfire is the right thing, but I've seen a number of situations where the departing partner ultimately is like the only one who made money and was able to cash out on their equity. And while the deal might not seem like a good deal to them at the time because the valuation's lower and they think the company has all this potential, it didn't turn out that way. You know, the company the company actually failed at some point, right? So they got paid out, whatever they got paid out. Um, but the other partners ended up with equity that wasn't worth anything because the company didn't survive.
1: Do you think that there's circumstances where... Or I guess, here, let me put this question a different way. What would be the indicators that folks should actually dissolve the whole thing and kind of go on their merry ways and start over versus the remaining partner or partners try and, you know, buy somebody out to exit where they stay with the original business?
0: Well, I mean, I, you're kind of doing the same thing under both scenarios. Um, but when you're dealing with a dissolution, you're only dealing with the value of the company at at the time, right? So, you only have whatever it is to to split up, you know? And at that point, I think the factors are, you know, some of it is just how challenging it is to recreate what you've already put in place, because that can be a lot of work. Um, and then, you know, maybe more importantly, or whatever, there's, you know, there are assets that belong to the company, including brand, like name and that kind of thing. And so you're then still dealing with it and that could be important for somebody to continue. So then you're still dealing with the question of kind of who continues those things, right? We didn't talk about this stuff, but you know, issues of, you know, how um, clients get split up. Um, And in that case, in the dissolution, is there any limitation on who can hire the employees and so on, you know, like these are all the things. So again, you're kind of dealing with the same issues in both of the contexts, and um, you know, if you have a business that's up and running, it makes more. It usually makes more sense to continue it and just you know get rid of the other person if you can do it at a at a price that makes sense.
1: The valuation part's really tricky, and I think that's that is often where at least I've seen it get pretty contentious. Is what? How do you? Because it it is not a science, right? There are some scientific frameworks for sure. Right. But there's, you know, half of evaluation is science and then the, the other half of it is art and opinions. Um, that's I think that's often where it gets tricky.
0: When I was thinking about this conversation, there were three instances that just like immediately popped into my head and I'm sure that if I thought of if I thought about it for longer, like there'd be more.
1: About
0: about where, you know, where where one of the partners got bought out. They were kind of pissed because they didn't think that they were getting what the company was, you know, their share of what the company was worth at the time. But but they did the deal and, you know, whatever. It took two or three years. They got paid out over the next couple of years. But after that, the company didn't succeed. So the remaining partner or partners actually didn't get, you know, they didn't see anything. Um, in terms of the equity in their deal. Well, that is the risk. It is the risk. And, you know, usually, I mean, when you're dealing with these contracts, you know, usually it's the other way around that the person's concerned about. It's that the guy leaving is like, oh, good, you're going to buy me out at, you know, X valuation. And tomorrow you're going to be able to sell the company for, you know, much more, you know, and then I'm going to feel like a schmuck, right? And actually, sometimes we build like, processes you know terms in there to deal with that situation but yeah the other way around i mean it's just like that's just whether the business succeeds or not
1: well then it can also because i've worked with this with you know the going concern of the business where that buyout the buyout payments can almost tank the business because you're committed to those for a bunch of years they basically have to come out of profit because that's that's what's happening it's equity it's
0: like like taking on any other debt, like can actually exactly. afford to pay it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So there's a bunch of other terms that if we wanted to like, I don't know, do we, do we care? Like yeah. what? Things like what happens to personal guarantees that the, that the departing
1: mm-hmm. met, might
0: be liable on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, restrictive covenants, are they already baked into the agreement or is that something that you're going to have to negotiate at the time?
1: John, what is a restrictive covenant?
0: You know. I
1: know, <laughs> but, but I'm...
0: No <laughs> so restrictive covenants. Um, so our
1: friends that are listening do not have to go on Google. <laughs> right.
0: so those would be things like non-competition, which would say that within a certain territory and a ter- certain kind of work, the person who's leaving is just flat out prohibited for a period of time from engaging in that business. Those, as we all know, well, we might not know, but those are the enforceability of those state by state is starting to, you know, kind of get carved back. But it would also include a non-solicitation, right? It would say that you couldn't you couldn't try to poach the customers for some period of time. Those are still more enforceable. But again, if it's already in the agreement, you know, it'll say it'll those will be in place. And then, again, it's a leverage question. If the person who's leaving really wants to do some things, then you know maybe you can try and negotiate it, but the leverage is with the company that already has those in place. Otherwise, you're going to be like, hey, we want you to sign a, a non-solicitation. And the person will be like, why should I do that? What do I get? For? You know. So that's a good yeah, example of that. totally. There's also um, questions around like intellectual property or assets that belong to the company and who gets to use that afterwards. And a um, couple... Main examples of that are you know there's there's often like technology or methods or processes that are created, and those belong to the company and hopefully the agreement says that, but you know those that belongs to the company, but you know the departing member wants to or you know needs to have access to those and again, is that already dealt with or is that something to the right time yes. including like creative assets like if you're a company that has created you know, logos and brands and that kind of stuff, you know, the person who's leaving, can they use that? Can they include it in their portfolio? Like what kind of uh, attribution do you have to give? You know, all totally, kind of totally. Stuff. right. Yep. Can you put that on your website? Can you put it on your website, right? Is it only for promotion? Can you do it for something else? You know, whatever. Yeah. There's more, but you know, that's those are some things,
1: yeah. Any summary points or words of wisdom for, I would say not for folks that are like at the mat, ready to go to divorce court, business dissolution court. But, um, but I do think what we laid out though is actually some pretty good points of like, if you're like, Oh shit, we don't have an operating agreement or, Oh, we did. We did one on legal zoom. Is it okay? Yeah. Um, (laughs) I am not dissing the legal zoom form.
0: I'm just saying it, it it shows the limitations though of, of certain kinds of contracts. So, Obviously, I'm biased when I answer that question, but I, I mean, I really do believe that having an agreement, recognizing that you're likely to have to negotiate something outside the agreement when the time comes, is still important. And, you know, even a skinny one that at least clips these points is worthwhile to put in place. And you know what? I've had half, all I've eaten today is half a bowl of oatmeal. And so now half a bowl of oatmeal and half a drink of rye,
1: I'm like, boom. Great. It's going to be a good Sunday afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, John. Cheers, Yeah, cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Fridays. Whiskey Fridays is a collaboration between my friend and colleague, John Gerber, who you can find at unlawyer.com.
0: And my friend and colleague, Kate Tyson, who's at wanderwellconsulting.com.
1: If this episode resonated with you in any way, we'd love for you to share it with a friend. And if you have any whiskey recommendations,
0: please share those with us as well.
1: Talk to you next time. Thank you. There's, like, a tuba or something upstairs now. Ooh, I love a tuba. <laughs> I'm t- they're probably doing some kind of hoedown. Did you play tuba? No. <laughs> Why oh, I did I think that? Oboe. quite oh, the right. opposite tuba. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs>